This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. If you go to an anti-North Korea demonstration in Seoul, there'll be like 50 old men who are Korean War veterans who will show up. But if you go to an anti-U.S. demonstration, of which I've been to many, you see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, these candlelight marches. There is, you know, very much a view among a lot of Koreans that we are the problem. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is one I've been wanting to do for, for some time. I think that the single most important thing happening in the world right now, at least for America, is that we might really go to war with North Korea. I think that we are underestimating how close it is, how likely it is, and how unbelievably destructive it would be. Uh, and I think a lot of the danger here has emerged from miscommunication, misapprehension, misunderstanding on both sides. We do not understand North Korea. They do not understand us. When I was looking for somebody who did understand North Korea, the first person I thought of was Barbara Demick. She is the author of Nothing to Envy, which is just probably the best recent book about North Korea. She wrote this book when she was the bureau chief in Seoul and then in Beijing for the LA Times. And she did this remarkable thing where she worked with North Korean refugees, people who had crossed over, people had survived crossing over, to reconstruct accounts from various strata of life, various different kinds of people, what life was like for them in North Korea growing up. It is the single best look we have by far, by far, of what it is like to live in North Korea, what North Korea is like for the people in it. In this podcast, we also talk about the nuclear threat, about the Kims and and that family and, and, and the way the current ruler of North Korea is maybe different than some of his predecessors. But the thing that I think Barbara really brings here is an understanding of what life is like for ordinary people in North Korea. That is a perspective that we really don't get in the media. And it's one we have to remember. If there is a war, even if it is a war where we are the ones causing the damage and they never launch a nuclear weapon, these are real people there who will die. North Korea is a, it's a real place. It's not just Kim Jong-un. It is a, a real city where people love and they live and they try to live out their lives in, in peace to the extent they can. And they're, they're through, for the most part, no fault of their own under the grip of a horrid dictatorship. This conversation is part of The Podium, a podcast collaboration between NBC Sports Group and Vox Media. Beginning in January, we'll be bringing you athlete profiles, daily updates, and exciting stories from the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea. You can subscribe to The Podium wherever you get your podcasts. But before the games begin, this conversation uh, is an important one for understanding what might be about to happen and why we really, really, really need to stop disaster from happening. So here's Barbara Demick. Barbara Demmerich, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you here. Your your book on on North Korea has been a huge influence in my thinking on it and, and is such a tremendous journalistic achievement. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So why don't we start in the history here? You talk in the book about how Koreans felt at, at the time their country was divided as if they were they were shrimp among whales, that they were being buffeted by by the great powers around them. Can you talk a little bit about how we came to have a, a North and South Korea? Who did that and 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 how they set these forces into motion? Well, um, that's a good question because actually we did it. We divided the Korean Peninsula. At the end of World War II, Korea had been occupied for 35 years by the Japanese. And Nobody really knew what to do with it. Nobody knew much about it. Nobody in the U.S. knew much about it, um, what to do with it. There had been elaborate plans for the post-war occupation of Germany and Japan, but not Korea. And at the same time, there was you know, a great fear in Washington that the Soviet Union would be um, exerting its influence and that it might actually try to seize the entire Korean peninsula. So... Two State Department officers, one of whom was Dean Rusk, who later became Secretary of State, kind of huddled in a basement with a uh, National Geographic map of the Korean Peninsula and said, let's let's divide it. And the U.S. wanted to keep Seoul, the capital, the largest city in the southern, southern district. And so they picked the 38th parallel rather arbitrarily. And this was really just a line on a map. Korea had never been divided in this way. In fact, regional divisions tended to run east-west, not north-south. And, you know, of course, over time, this line hardened into, um, you know, an impermeable demilitarized zone across the peninsula. But gradually, people who had been more... um, left-wing people who had fought the Japanese tended to move north. People with money, landlords, people who had worked in the Japanese occupation government tended to move south, and these populations became politically very different. But they were, you know, they were the same people, and just everybody had a relative heading to the other side. And it was really, it was infuriating to the Koreans because they had been occupied and they thought they were going to have their independence. And they also felt like, unlike the Germans who were divided because of their guilt, because they had been aggressors in World War II, the the Koreans had been victims. They were divided because of their innocence. And it led to... um, a um, you know a poor poor us attitude, which I think is still um, you know very prevalent in in both Koreas, especially North Korea. That's part of the reason they blame the United States for the predicament that they're in now. When you talk about a division, I think almost in a metaphysical way, it's hard to picture what you mean. I mean, there's not a wall or wasn't a wall uh, built built between the two sides. So when these guys in a basement using a National Geographic map divide this country. What literally happens? How is that division enforced? Well, you have soldiers on both sides. You have a um, you know a series of barbed wire fences. You have landmines. It's not like one wall, like the Berlin Wall, this iconic wall where you can put you know graffiti and jump over it. You know these these are. Fences, they're mine fences. There's a joint security area 
where North Koreans look at South Koreans and South Koreans look at North Koreans and tourists and um, heads of state go to look at the other side. But it, it is pretty impermeable. It's, it's great for wildlife. There's always, you know, some rare species being found in there because it hasn't been developed. But um, there's very little that crosses. For for a while, when I was living in Korea, there were a lot of joint ventures, and there were some South Korean tourists going north, and there were, you know, different cooperation projects. But right now, not much happens in between. And so one of the parts of this history that I find really striking is that you take East and West Germany, and East Germany develops a culture that on the one hand is different than West Germany, but on the other hand is very much related to the culture of the broader Soviet Union, of of communist dictatorships that we were used to. And North Korea takes this other route. You write in your book that, that Kim Il-sung took the least humane elements of Confucianism and combined them with Stalinism. Can you talk a little bit about what that North Korean ideology was, what its roots are, and and how they were able to create something so different? They really looked towards Japan and the imperial China. The North Korean regime is very much, you know, an empire or an imperial structure where the leadership is basically holy. That is their religion. They took elements from the Bible, especially the New Testament, about, you know, the Son of God, and incorporated this into, you know, an amalgam of religion and politics and a national ideology, which they call juche. Very hard to translate. It's often translated as self-reliance. But it was unlike any other aspect of communism because you had, you know, this this holy family ruling and you also had very distinctive class divisions. People were divided up by their loyalty to the regime. So you have, you know, a core class and a wavering class and a hostile class. And these class divisions were almost like Indian castes. I mean, it actually took some of the worst elements of political systems in Asia and combined it into a very strong totalitarian system. The the thing you say about the caste system, it was I had not known that. And it was striking to me. And I, I like the analogy to India because it does seem that if you were in the caste that was viewed with suspicion, the caste that was viewed as potentially hostile to the state or not committed to, to the revolution, that you did become and I don't want to exactly compare it to being an untouchable, but people were afraid of you because to be too closely associated with you, it could infect the state's view of, of them, too. Exactly. And it often had very little to do with your own behavior, but your parents and your grandparents and at this point, great-grandparents, if you had an ancestor who was a landlord or a Japanese collaborator or a a prostitute or a minister, you would have tainted blood. And that lasts many generations. And, you know, the Korean family ties are very strong. So if you have, um, you know, any relative who's done something like defected or become, you know, some sort of dissident, you know, the entire family is punished, you know, down to the third degree of cousins. And that is one of the ways they keep control. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So in this period, particularly in this early period, North Korea initially seems prosperous enough. Um, some of that maybe is propaganda, but but a lot of it tends out to be built on subsidies from, from Soviet regimes. But but for some time, the North Korean economy is okay and, and looks to many maybe even stronger than the South Korean economy. And then at some point, South Korea accelerates to become one of the richest countries in the world, to, to, to be one of very few countries to ever escape that middle income trap. And North Korea enters into a pretty extended period of stagnation and economic crisis and starvation. What went so wrong in the North Korean economy? It was sort of a downward spiral as South Korea accelerated. China normalized relations with South Korea, which was a great you know, slap in the face to North Korea. And piece by piece, everything went down. A lot of the infrastructure in North Korea was built uh, after the war in the 60s, even the early 70s, and things just fell apart. The North Koreans ran out of energy, basically. They've never had their own source of fuel oil, but their um, electrical plants fell apart. Um, they, They ran out of money to import fuel their factories closed. Their agricultural system was very dependent on artificial irrigation and fertilizers. And it was just, it was, you know, one of these things. The the factories closed because they couldn't afford the raw material and they didn't have the energy. And then they stopped paying salaries and the workers got hungry and the agricultural output declined. You know, they weren't rotating crops. They they were in the dark ages as far as agriculture is concerned. And it just, you know, all spiraled downward. And they had this hubris to say that we're self-reliant. And so they were very slow to accept international aid when the famine began. And, you know, they denied it for a long time. And, you know, visitors would come to Pyongyang and be shown prosperous-looking people. It, you know, it was all this fakery. But when things went down, they went down very fast. And, you know, they really haven't recovered. Why was the regime able to maintain stability during this period? They were very clever at convincing North Koreans that it was not their fault. They used this, you know, constant... Um, anti-American 
campaign to um, deflect blame. You know, it's all the fault of the United States. The United States has, um, you know, has sanctions, but before sanctions, there were, you know, blockades of fuel oil, that the U.S. keeps the Korean peninsula divided. North Koreans were often told that they were sacrificing for the eventual reunification of the North Korean of the Korean Peninsula, and the whole there were in that famine period. There were um, you know television shows that talked about how if people ate too much rice, their belly would burst, and how much healthier it was not to eat much. I mean, there was just all sorts of of silliness, and you know, they invoked these kind of fake news stories about Kim Il Sung as a anti-Japanese freedom fighter and how much he suffered. And, you know, it was interesting for me when I talked to North Koreans who lived through that period, you know, for a long time they said, you know, it just didn't occur to us that our own government was to blame. You know, we thought that we weren't working hard enough, we weren't doing a good enough job supporting our families. They use this um, anti-Americanism you know, very, very effectively. And, um, I mean, this pertains to the present situation. This is why I think you know, Trump has given them the greatest gift ever because, you know, anti-Americanism is the the force that gives them meaning. It's their raison d'etre. You know, they always say they want talks with the United States, but they need to keep up that hostility. And, you know, in the past we had these presidents who were saying, you know, we want to be friends and we want to bring you into the community of nations and blah, blah, blah. But when Trump gets up there and talks about fire and fury and the little rocket man, I mean, he's just like, you know, the North Korean leadership has got to be thrilled. The, that. I, I want to put a pin in that because we're, we're going to talk a lot about that. But there's another point you made uh, in your book about this period in North Korean history that, that I found very perceptive, both in North Korea and I think is a broader idea about political systems, which is that the worse things got in North Korea, the, the, the deeper the famine got, the deeper the suffering got, the more oppressive they got. You wrote that the regime stepped up its extensive network of domestic surveillance. The more there was to complain about, the more important it was to ensure that nobody did. How much of the totalitarianism of the regime, of the purges and 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 the getting people to report their neighbors and creating these very, very elaborate structures of mutual suspicion is a reaction to a sense that when things are this bad, even a little spark can send the entire structure up into flames. Well, that is a lot of it. And what they saw happening during the famine period was people were taking um, their own livelihood into their own hands rather than depending on their government jobs they would you know pick pick herbs in the mountain or try to grow crops or try to sell things in markets and that had to be stamped out because they needed a populace that was totally dependent on the government for survival and, you know, this is getting a bit far afield, but as people started, you know, escaping across the border into China, they had to redouble the propaganda to to tell people, um, actually, you're happier here, you're better off here. They wanted people to think the rest of the world was going to hell and that people 
were hungrier and worse off in China. And that's, you know, that is central to their propaganda. I, I named my book after this very popular North Korean song, Nothing to Envy. We have nothing to envy in the world because we live in the greatest country under the loving care of Kim Il-sung, blah, 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 blah. And that was the message that they have had to keep on telling them. And that, of course, required absolute, you know, hermetic sealing of the country from any outside news. So I'd like to talk about ordinary North Koreans for a bit, because we have, I think, a very dehumanizing way of speaking about them. In this country, we see these ridiculous statements from the North Korean government, this ridiculous propaganda, these absurd news stories. And then, you know, we see parades of North Koreans sort of all dressed up the same way. They can be represented, I think, almost automaton-like, right? It's it's yeah. unclear what humanity they possess. And, and what's so remarkable about your book is that it has so much insight into their lives. So let me ask the question this way. What is it that Americans, in your view, don't understand about the daily lives of ordinary North Koreans? Well, this is the oldest cliche out there to say they're just like us. They're not just like us, but they're concerns are very similar to ours. They care about their kids, their kids' education. They care about their elderly parents. They care about where their next meal is coming from, about keeping warm in the winter. Family is very, very important in Korea, both Koreans. And they have a much more nuanced view than you might think. When I interviewed North Koreans, North Korean defectors, but some of them, you know, very recently out of the country. I've interviewed people who, you know, left a week ago. They don't all have the same opinion. You know, they, they're, they're pretty complicated people, and they have good reasons for doing what they do. There's a lot of people in North Korea who have no faith in their regime they're smart. They know what's going on in the world, but they feel powerless to change it. And they realize that if they were to engage in any act of dissent, that it would not just be them, but their whole family, their parents, their cousins, their siblings, nieces, and nephews who would be punished. So they decide that it's best to go along with the system. And, you know, I've met so many really nice, smart, North Koreans. I remember meeting a, a coal miner at the Chinese border. He'd been out very, very recently. And he said, he was not an educated man, but he said to me, you know, we're not stupid. I know that, you know, our regime is to blame for our situation. And my, you know, my my neighbor knows our regime is to blame, but we're not stupid enough to talk about it. This was already, you know, in the early 2000s after the famine and when people were getting a little bit more in the know, you have a very smart population there. This is another thing that's often misunderstood. People think of um, North Korea as, you know, this third world country because it's so poor. But it's really a country that sort of fell out of the first world or at least the second world. People were very well educated in the past. They had, through the, the 70s and maybe 80s, much higher literacy rates than South Korea. So it's a pretty, pretty sophisticated population. Of course, they're completely propagandized, but they're not dumb. And 
when I've interviewed them, you know, mostly in China or South Korea. They're very warm, smart, funny people. How sealed off are they in practice? How much does your average North Korean really know about South Korea or the United States, about material abundance elsewhere? What is the real state of knowledge about the outside world? They've gotten much more knowledgeable about the outside world. It is really hard to hermetically seal a country in the age of globalization. The big source of corrupting the minds of the North Korean people is actually China. There's this, it's not South Korea, it's China. There's this, you know, more than 800-mile border between North Korea and China, and everything comes from China, just like here, but, you know, even more so. DVDs, hard drives, memory sticks, music, soap operas. And the North Koreans knew for years that South Korea was richer, of course, Europe and the U.S. and Japan. But for a long time, they thought China was poor. In fact, many ethnic Koreans came over from China during the Great Leap Forward, you know, during the famines in China. You know, North Korea was better off. So when North Koreans find out that people in China are eating rice, sometimes eating rice three times a day, they think, wow, that's that's really something, and that's very corrosive. And it's hard for them not to know that because, you know, during the famine period and even now, North Koreans sneak across the border into China, and they come back with these tales of abundance. And it, it, some of the most amazing experience I had with North Koreans is, you know, meeting them in China, this part of China near the North Korean border, like by our standards, is a pretty cruddy and poor part of China. This is not Shanghai. But they get across the border into China and they see, you know, stores selling bushels full of apples and these snack foods and, you know, the lights. They'll talk about these cruddy little border towns like they've just gone to Paris, you know, the lights, the color, the food, you know, the the cars, there's that kind of contrast. And then they come back to North Korea and they they know. This is something that has puzzled me about the regime for, for some time, re- reading up on them. The top levels of the North Korean regime quite enjoy the fruits of the outside world. Kim Jong-un's father was an international cinema buff. Kim Jong-un himself was educated partially in Switzerland. His brother had an altercation of some kind with the law when he went to a Disneyland in, a, in another country. Um, top people in the regime, they they get nice whiskey and nice sushi. And there there isn't, it seems to me, a desire to be locked off. There's a real desire to participate in, in the fruits of, of, of the world. And I've never understood why that didn't lead them to follow a more China-like path. Why, if so many people wanted these things at the top levels of the regime, why they've decided to remain so closed off and isolated as opposed to follow a path of, of at least relative openness. Because it doesn't seem like where they've ended up. I know this is maybe very naive. It just confuses me. They they seem to want a lot of what the outside world has to offer, and it would be within their grasp, or it seems from the outside that it would be 
to, to, to open up and, and to have some of that enter their, their lives in a more upfront way? I think this has to do with the regime's desire for self-preservation. And they feel that if North Koreans see what's on the outside, that they won't believe in their system anymore. And, you know, they, they have to maintain this underlying lie that, you know, we have nothing to envy. You know, and also they, they frankly devote a lot of their national resources to building weapons of mass destruction. You know, this can't be this can't be denied. With what they've spent on their nuclear and missile program, you know, could be building, you know, new electrical plants. They could be investing in solar power. They could be buying rice. Backing up before Donald Trump took office, North Korea was a top concern for, for President Obama, for President George W. Bush, for President Bill Clinton. And I have often struggled with the question of how much should America care if North Korea has a weapon and delivery capabilities. You often will read these stories of, you know, North Korea might be developing a weapon that could that could reach Guam, that could reach Hawaii, that could reach a California coast. But obviously a lot of regimes have weapons that could reach America if they so chose. Is North Korea really a, an, an international threat? Are, are they really something that from a, an American perspective, we should have so much fear and concern about? Well, you know, this is the great question, and I'm glad you asked it because, you know, I, I, I almost you know, I hesitate to say this, but this is a bit of a self-inflicted crisis. We, we are very far away from North Korea, and we don't really have, you know, a lot of interests in North Korea. And, you know, the, a lot of South Koreans believe, like, well, why doesn't, you know, that the U.S. is the problem? Why don't we get out of the peninsula and you know then we're not on that we're not in the way and that our whole presence there is counterproductive and that view is very popular among um, young South Koreans I lived in South Korea for more than four years and you know you think that South Koreans are you know furious with North Korea and this this and that but if you go to a demonstration, an anti-North Korea demonstration in Seoul, you know, there'll be, there'll be like 50 old men who are Korean War veterans who will show up. But if you go to an anti-U.S. demonstration, of which I've been to many, you see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, these candlelight marches, there is, you know, very much a view among a lot of Koreans that we are the problem. Do you agree with that view? Oh, you're going to get me in so much trouble, but... <laughs> Uh, I just, like, see the emails I'm going to get. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm not saying, like, we should just pull out of South Korea, but we are we are kind of the problem. And, you know, I, I think almost any South Korean you talk to would say they're much more frightened of Donald Trump than they are of Kim Jong-un. Um, you know, the North Koreans are just doing what they always what they always do, they're always threatening to turn Seoul into a sea of fire and unleash a thermonuclear war. And people in Seoul just shrug about it. And you know, I found this too when I was living in South Korea, that you know nobody would be talking about this stuff. And then I would like come home and people would start talking to me, oh, like, is there going to be a war? Are you evacuating? You know, blah, blah, blah. They just, they sort of 
I know maybe they shrug too much, but they kind of shrug it off in South Korea because the North Koreans have been threatening for so long. I guess I'm going far afield now, but I don't I don't believe that North Korea would launch an, an unprovoked attack on the United States, you know, maybe a provocation, um, which they've done before where they're testing, testing. They've certainly tested South Korea in that way. They've sunk a ship. They've shelled a, an island near the border. But they know that if they start a war with South Korea, which is double their size in population, it's the end of their country. It's the end of their system. And, you know, more importantly for all those people in the elite, it's the end of their life of privilege if they're not shot in the subsequent um, fighting, you know, they're going to be at best refugees in South Korea or China. And one thing that feels to me true from the American side is that we have constructed, at the very least, a rhetorical framework from which there is no easy exit. There is a thing that has largely already happened and is certainly happening, which is that North Korea is a nuclear power that is developing more and more ways to deliver that that nuclear capability to farther and farther locales. And we say that is unacceptable. But we also don't really have a way to stop it. And to a very large degree, it's already happened. Yeah. And yeah. we seem to me to have set something up here that, that we actually don't have a, a clear way to climb down from. That's right. I mean, I, I've not met one policy analyst who believes North Korea is going to denuclearize Maybe they would do, um, you know, what what China has asked, the, the freeze for freeze, you know, meaning we give some small concession in terms of the war grains in South Korea. We're not going to stop them. We're not going to pull out of South Korea in this atmosphere. And they stop their testing, stop, stop their missile tests, stop their nuclear tests. That is the absolute best we can hope for now, but especially after Libya, you know, Libya was the big disaster as far as as far as North Korea was concerned, because they saw Gaddafi having given up his weapons, having taken this offer of trying to come into the community of nations, blah, blah, blah. And then Gaddafi ends up like a wounded dog in a ditch, and they're not going to give up their weapons. They're just not going to do it. The other thing that we seem to be asking them to give up, at least in the terms in which the North Korean government has set it up, is their dignity. Trump has an unusual method of of international diplomatic communication. And North Korea is a land where speaking out against the leader gives you a death sentence. And Trump's constant provocations. I mean, I'm I'm sure you saw this many, many times, but he said that, you know, he can't believe Kim Jong-un called him old. He doesn't call Kim Jong-un short and fat, though clearly, you know, he (laughs) is. Um, You know, he calls Kim Jong-un little rocket man. That, I think, even in a normal political system is problematic and, and unusual. But how does that kind of personal insulting read in the North Korean system with its much more stringent regulations on what you can say about the dear leader? Well, you know, as I said earlier, it's a great gift to the North Korean regime to have 
genuine hostile rhetoric coming out of the mouth of the U.S. president. You know, this is what they need. They need this, you know, to keep this warlike atmosphere going. And, you know, Trump is just playing into their hands. I also think, though, in a way, Trump's Trump's threats and his madman act, which is, you know, maybe an act, maybe real, has been sort of good in the early stages. I thought, okay, we don't have to sound so, you know, eminently reasonable about it. I think, at least initially, Trump scared them, as he scared many people. And that was not a bad thing. But, you know, on both sides, you need more than hostile rhetoric. We had, you know, an armada supposedly steaming towards North Korea. But when that armada turned out to be in Indonesia, I think they, you know, saw like, well, we're faking it. But I, I do think they've been scared of Trump. But and that's that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I think it's good for them to think that he's mad and dangerous. But you need something else. You know, you need at the same time, there's not like one solution. You know, you need active diplomacy. You need some face-saving, tension-de-escalating moves. I think sanctions have been effective, especially some of the U.S. sanctions on Chinese banks that we're dealing with. North Korea, that was very, very effective, but now the State Department has no staff, and that is not moving as fast as it should because there's no no staff at the State Department to handle it. But, you know, all of these things, threatening them but giving them, you know, some escape path, people often invoke, you know, Sun Tzu on this, give the enemy at least some sort of route so that they don't fight to the death. All of this needs to be done, and just the hostile rhetoric from Trump doesn't help. Well, so this is my concern. I, I understand the appeal of madmen strategic games, and obviously there's like a, a great deep literature and game theory about it. But most of the time, that has a quality of both sides actually have a plan, and both sides are, are fundamentally rational but pretending a certain degree of irrationality. And the question that, that North Korea and Trump together create is what happens if the two sides don't understand each other, if maybe they're not actually that rational, and if a series of provocations connected to domestic political considerations, connected to miscommunications, creates an escalation structure that ultimately nobody can can back down from. I mean, as much as maybe it's valuable to have North Korea a bit more afraid of us, it also seems like we are increasing the tail risk for something truly terrible to happen. That's right, because it's very hard to have a controlled conflict in this atmosphere. You know, if something happens, as it does periodically, the, the North Koreans shell a South Korean island, sink a boat, a missile goes astray. There are no lines of communication between the U.S. and the North Korea. I mean, there's some back-channel stuff, but that's not at a military level. And, you know, the North Koreans would be very motivated to, you know, reach for their big guns to escalate because they need to go nuclear or chemical or biological early in an all-out conflict because they know that if they don't use it, it's going to be lost. 
and they feel their regime is going down, they could be very dangerous. I mean, in, in a way, they, it's their weakness that makes them so dangerous. We're not fighting among equals, which is why deterrence doesn't work in the same way. I mean, I think deterrence still could work, but if something started, you know, it could escalate very, very quickly. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If President Trump called you into the Oval Office for 30 minutes to to brief him on North Korea, to, to help him understand North Korea, what are the main one or two points you would tell him? I'd say make a deal. You know, I say, you know, you're the art of the deal. Work on a deal. Send your own envoy. Obviously, he's not going to go himself. We have some wacky ideas if you want to hear them. There's this huge building in Pyongyang, kind of an eyesore, this pyramid-shaped hotel that was unfinished since the 1980s. And the, the North Koreans have been desperate to get it opened and fixed, turn it into a Trump Tower. How's that? It's outside the box. Outside the box. This is a, a friend of mine who does not want to be named <laughs> who, who suggested it. But, um, you know... It, Engage them, but let me ask you then. What, and, what? And, and 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 if and if Trump, by the way, if Trump has a soundbite, you know, saying, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna deal with them. Maybe I'll be friends. You know, that weakens them. That weakens them. You know, I. This is again. This is a parlor game. But I've often thought that in two thousand, when Madeleine Albright went to North Korea, and there was a sense that a deal really could be made. I think if there had been a deal, the regime would have collapsed by now. You know, no way of knowing, but they, you know, they need this hostility to the U.S. and they need this, you know, seclusion from the outside world to keep going. Let me ask you uh, about that very specifically. So let's say that Donald Trump woke up tomorrow and decided, you know what, I do want a deal. I do want to figure something out here. What is, putting aside the diplomatic path to a deal, what do you think is the shape of a deal that could ultimately serve as an agreement. I think it would have to start with mutual concessions, at least face-saving ones. I mean, North Korea would have to stop the missile tests, have to stop the nuclear tests, and I think it would have to, um, you know, sort of be at least heading in the direction of, you know, a real peace treaty. And which would involve recognizing recognizing the government and accepting them. I think in order to do that, and this is I'll bring up the issue of human rights, which you know becomes sort of an afterthought of this, but you know we we cannot normalize relations with a country like North Korea unless they improve their human rights record. And I think human rights is something that they can push on 
much more. I think it would actually be helpful to the larger nuclear and military system, not something that gets in the way. And, you know, there has to be, has to be you know, an, an end in sight where there's some sort of normalization or tacit acceptance. Well, what does North Korea want from us? I feel like from that deal, I get a better sense of what we want from them. But given, as you said, that anti-Americanism is a raison d'etre, given that it is possibly important to the regime to have this kind of enemy, is there something the regime would want from us? You know, they really have their own struggles with globalization. I mean, this is the thing about North Korea is I I don't think Kim Jong-un wants his people to starve. But he doesn't want his regime to collapse either. And so they're looking at how how can they get international money? How can they build their economy? How can they be prosperous without endangering their regime? They want like international money, but they don't want international ideas or international people. And I don't know, you know, we we have relations with other repressive regimes. You know, I don't know if it's possible at this point, but the the solution has to be diplomatic because it can't be military. This these, this idea of attacking North Korea is is nuts because like attack what? You know, we don't we don't really know where their nuclear program is. How much internal division is there over the regime? Um I, I had asked my audience for, for questions for you and, and, and Thomas wrote in and he said he asked, what are the, the demographics and cultural and social divides within North Korea? To what degree are they the homogenous population we often hear them represented as? And, and to what degree is Kim Jong-un actually managing constituencies that are in tension with each other, with him, uh, and, and in ways that are consequential for us? You know, Kim Jong-un has done pretty well. I think the economy has grown a bit under Kim Jong-un. He did one thing that was very good within months after his father died. His father died, Kim Jong-il died in December 2011. And he lifted a lot of the restrictions on the markets. Um, Kim Jong-il, you know, was constantly closing down the markets and, you know, saying markets are antithetical to socialism. And, you know, that just caused great trouble in North Korea because North Koreans, you know, are basically not paid. They have very little of a public distribution system anymore. They need to work privately in order to feed themselves. And Kim Jong-un, you know, as I said, lifted those restrictions very, very quickly. And that has strengthened strengthened the economy quite a bit. And, you know, my sense is that Kim Jong-un is is much more popular than his father. Kim Jong-il was not well-liked. Kim Jong-il, you know, had the bad fortune of taking over in 94 as the famine was getting bad. Kim Jong-un had very good luck. He took over in December 2011. They had, the North Koreans had planned in 2012, which is the centennial of Kim Il-sung's birth, you know, all these like new apartments and theaters coming online. It was all under construction for years. I saw it the last time I was in Pyongyang. But it all came online in 2012. So it looked like Kim Jong-un did it. And 
So I think he's managing domestically pretty well. Things seem to have improved. And, you know, we, we see him as like, you know, short and fat and weird, something that we probably agree with Donald Trump on. But um, the North Koreans kind of like the fat. Fat is a, still a status symbol in Korea. And he looks a bit like his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who's still popular. And so I think he has, you know, a fair amount of um, public support to the extent that there's, you know, public support in North Korea. And the other thing is there's a lot of North Koreans who do not like their system and would like to see things collapse and would like to see, you know, unification with South Korea and this and that. But I think that if they feel that North Korea is attacked, they'll, they'll fight to the death even if they hate their system. And these, this is a lesson, you know, we saw in Iraq. No matter how bad a government is, people seem to prefer their own shitty government to the best occupation. And you know, there, there's really no such thing as a benign occupation. And if North Koreans, even the ones who don't like their regime, think that the U.S. is attacking them or that China is attacking them or that they might be occupied, they they will fight tooth and nail. Barbara Demick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. Love to talk about North Korea anytime. Thanks so much to Barbara. Thank you to all of you for being here. This conversation is part of The Podium, a podcast collaboration between NBC Sports Group and Vox Media. To subscribe, just search The Podium wherever you listen to the Ezra Klein Show and leave them a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you as always to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production and we'll be back Monday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.